Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. Make your holiday purchases more rewarding with the Navy Federal Credit Union Cash Rewards Credit Card, where members earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase they make. Visit NavyFederal.org for more details and to apply. All right, today we're talking with Air Force veteran Bob Taylor, CEO of Alliant Healthcare. Uh, Bob, you spent quite a bit of time in the Air Force. I'm sure you got some great stories. Take us back and tell us what you did in the Air Force. Well, uh, back in 87 is when I, I joined. Um, really wanted to, uh, to fly and... Uh, uh, interesting story, senior year at Michigan State, uh, walking around campus, and I kind of heard uh, a voice in my head from my dad as I grew up. I could remember him saying, oh, I wish I would have always learned how to fly. <laughs> and so right after that, I looked up and I'm walking in front of an Air Force recruiting office. So I took a right turn, went in. Um, nine months later, I was... Uh, at officer's training school. And then uh, a couple months later, we were in uh, a twin engine trainer learning how to fly as uh, part of the first part of uh, navigator training. That's awesome. So overall, how much time did you spend in the Air Force doing and doing what? Yeah, over the course of, uh, I'd say 21 years, I spent 17 and a half years. Six of that was active duty in uh, B-52s as a navigator and a radar navigator. Uh, and uh, I left the Air Force uh, about a year after Desert Storm and uh, went into uh, R&D work in the medical uh, device field and uh, received a letter from the Air Force Reserves that uh, invited me back into KC-135 as a navigator. And I just couldn't, um, it's, it's really hard to give up um, that, that type of um, life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just so um, happy in my role as a, as a navigator and, and flying in the Air Force. So I, I joined through the Air Force Reserves. Uh, and, then, uh, and then after eight years of that, um, went on to be an Air Force Academy liaison officer to wrap up my career. That's awesome. So back when you, when you initially left active duty, um, what was that transition like for you? And, you know, had you always been an entrepreneur or did that come about through some of your experiences in corporate America? I think, uh, you know, I, I interview a lot of people as owner of a company. And one of the things I look for in hiring people are, people that are self-described as an entrepreneur uh, because entrepreneurs, they don't see obstacles. They just go around them kind of like uh, water going around a rock in a river. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I always ask those people, why do you think you're an entrepreneur? And so many of them reflect back to their relationships with their, their fathers or, or uh, many times their mothers that are great examples of entrepreneurs. And I think uh, both my mom and dad were entrepreneurial. 
And uh, my mom helped with the business. My dad started an ambulance company back when uh, funeral homes ran ambulance companies. So, I mean, he was, he was kind of a visionary for, for that period of time. And um, so I started my first business when I was in high school. It was a tree spraying business. And so I've always considered myself entrepreneurial from that standpoint. Yeah. And so as you came out of the Air Force and you went in the civilian sector, um, going into the corporate America side, how did you work your way through the corporate America way of doing things and eventually go full time as, as an entrepreneur? Well, um, it was a it was a kind of a scary time when um, after Desert Storm they started to have uh, what they call RIF reduction in force. Oh, yeah. And I saw several of my buddies that I thought were some of the best career officers that I had known. They were majors, and uh, all of a sudden their name shows up on a line item of a report, and they're done. And I was a captain at the time, and that. That just kind of freaked me out. I thought, how can these guys give, you know, they're at the 12 to 15 year point of their career and they just get a report that says they're done. And that kind of rocked my world a little bit. So I kind of decided that the best thing for my family was for me to kind of choose my own terms. And uh, I started looking and, you know, it was very discouraging at first because everyone told me that as a mechanical engineer, I shouldn't expect to find a job, uh, that if I were to find a job, I'd have to take about a 50% salary reduction. And uh, it was just, you know, there was no uplifting information on helping to find a, a role. Um, and as in many parts of life, it, uh, it helps to have friends. And my best friend in college called me and said that they had an opening for a third shift uh, engineer. And uh, I interviewed uh, for that position. And before I was done with the interview, they offered me a, a job on their R&D team. So um, I started developing uh, devices called electrosurgical devices. And, that, and that, that's a medical company? It was a medical company called Richard Allen Medical in Kalamazoo. Yeah. And so I, I was able to make the, the leap straight from uh, active duty uh, into a, a, a great role for me. And uh, the owner of the company, uh, Rick Neuhauser, was, was just uh, ahead of his time in manufacturing set us up as individual business unit leaders. So I took over the operations of the product that I developed and uh, learned every aspect of how to run a small business. And that training, that intense uh, environment, uh, which I think the, the military prepared us for exceptionally well, um, I was able to make that transition. And then, um, uh, was able to kind of find my way um, about um, six years later, two, two partners and myself founded a company called Aspen Surgical Products. Uh, I sold my interest in that after three years to start up Alliant Healthcare. 
And uh, a few years after that, Aspen Surgical sold for $400 million um, to, uh, to, invest, or to uh, Hillrom. And so it's just been uh, um, an opportunity that I've been able to seize on and, uh, and surround myself with great people yeah. to, uh, to find the success. All right. Well, hey, Bob, uh, it's a good stopping point. We're going to take a quick break for sponsorship and we'll be right back. For over 30 years as a Navy federal member, I've been through just about every military and life event, deployments, home loans, car loans, credit cards, unexpected financial events. And I can say that Navy federal gets the military At Navy federal members of the mission. Make your holiday purchases more rewarding with the Navy federal credit union cash rewards credit card where members earn unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase they make. Your rewards won't expire while your account is open, and best of all, you can redeem them online or with the mobile app as soon as they're earned. Plus, Cash Rewards card is contactless, meaning you can make payments quickly and securely with just the tap of your card. At Navy Federal, members of the mission. Visit NavyFederal.org for more details and to apply. Open to the Armed Forces, DOD, veterans, and their families. Message and data rates may apply. Insured by NCUA. All right, back talking with Air Force veteran Bob Taylor, CEO of Alliant Healthcare. So, Bob, uh, before the break, you said you're working uh, in the R&D department as an engineer for a medical company, and all of a sudden, you and a couple other guys started up a uh, your own medical-related company, and then you sold your interest in it. But I want to go back to what was the mentality that, that took place, and what was that experience like where you're working as an engineer um, cause really I'm curious because this is the proverbial, uh, the e-myth, the book all about the e-myth, you know, you're great at making widgets. So you decided to create your own company and then you realize you can't, ha- you don't, you don't, you can't spend your time making widgets anymore because now you have to run a company. So, right. I mean, you're, you're literally a guy doing R and D making widgets and you, it sounds like you went out and started your own company with, with a couple other guys. I want to hear about that mentality and that process that went on back then and what that sure so yeah i did skip a couple steps in that um (laughs) so you know i mentioned that um i followed my products into operations so i became um, a business unit leader uh in charge of a pnl and then the company was acquired um along the way and um my role changed again i was asked to go into marketing and uh, if you're going to run a company, uh, it's, it's important for you to understand kind of the full scope and scale of a company. So having roles in engineering, manufacturing, and then marketing uh, was really critical. And uh, uh, I started working in that role, handling some um, mergers and acquisitions. So the company that acquired us, they were also acquiring companies. So I just learned a ton about uh, different aspects of business, how to, how to integrate them, how to uh, transfer uh, technologies. Uh, and then in my role as um, director of marketing, I, I kept getting these calls from uh, two particular sales reps that were asking about products that weren't really the, the sexy stars of the company. Mm-hmm. But they were they were what we call the cash cows, and uh, I just 
help them. And, you know, one thing that I've, I've learned is you have to value just about every relationship that you can as you're in business. You just never know where opportunities are going to come from. You have to treat everyone, even people that you don't really care for. You have to, to just value those relationships. And in this case, um, uh, as it turned out, these uh, two guys were interested in these products and uh, the company had asked me to start selling off some of what they called the non-strategic um, products. And so I was in charge of selling off some of these non-strategic uh, assets and uh, these guys approached me and said, hey, how would you like to take over the operations? And uh, so um, it was just another big transition. I felt very comfortable handling uh, lean manufacturing and uh, uh, transitioning into the operations of a new business. And we took over products that we already had a base of business. And uh, all I did was, was uh, I had a vision of uh, ramping up the volume and automating some of the processes and driving down costs and the company grew astronomically fast and that allowed me to sell my interest three years later and start up a new company yeah and I mean, that's kind of a unique scenario where the, the company you're working for asked you to sell off some of yeah. their cool, some of their producing products and in the process, it creates an opportunity for you, creates another company. Um, it, was, it was definitely a, a fine line to walk. And uh, with my relationships within the company, I was very open. Um, but it, you know, it is absolutely not a common path uh, to go through to start up a company. Um, just again, um, you know, the, the whole key is just being prepared to take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. Yeah. Um, what was the, what was the mentality of the company you were working for trying to sell off some of their current products? They, um, they were interested in super rapid growth. And so, you know, you've heard of, you know, categories of products, some of them being cash cows, some of them being stars. Um, and so, you know, their whole focus was on identifying stars and doing acquisition. They spent a boatload of money doing that. They spent over $250 million in six months. And so what that created was, was a cash crunch for the company. So their best source of, of cash was to sell off some of their non-strategic assets. So, um, you know, they, they look around and they just kind of tagged someone that could handle various projects and, and asked me to handle uh, trying to sell off some of these assets. You know, that's an interesting concept. Um, <clears throat> being like an individual Amazon seller of fairly small type products that don't are, are not superstars by any means. Um, and previous interviews that I've conducted here on the show, a lot of, a lot of people don't realize that, there's a lot of really good products out there, but they might not be a superstar or a rock star. Therefore, companies might not be interested in, interested in them for that reason. Um, 
But a lot of these products, your company that you're working for, they want to get rid of them. They want to get rid of them to raise capital, but they knew that they were never, they were only going to go so far. They still were cash cows and they're still going to make them money, but they're really just trying to neck down and become lean with only a few really big products. And companies do that all the time. Yeah. And that's, that's one area that we keep our eyes posted for are companies that are shutting down product lines. To them, it's it's not worth it. But to us, the, you know, sometimes they're $10 million product lines. And <laughs> these products that we bought, um, they were 65% gross margin. One of the products was just a simple no-brainer product that was 80% gross margin. And okay. so... Do you know what that number is? Um, so this was many years ago. I, I interviewed a guy who had worked for Johnson and Johnson in the R and D department. And they would, uh, their job was to like what the term we used in flight briefs in the Marine Corps was they would murder board, uh, potential products. And the main thing that took most of the products out of the fight was what was the market size that it was going to, what, what market size could they expect to get out of the current market size that's there. And if I forget what the number was, if it was, if it wasn't at least 40 million or 50 million or some number in that range, if it wasn't at least this number, then they, they ditched the product, even though it could have made the company 30 million, you know, it's a $30 million product every year. Wasn't big enough for a company like Johnson and Johnson. And, and that's where a lot of times how, whether it's just Amazon sellers or smaller companies, that are much leaner can grab tar- you know, target products like that, that the big guys aren't willing to mess with. Well, the, a lot of it is in growth too. So um, we, uh, I, I recently sold a cardiovascular company, but we continue to be the manufacturer of those products. But to some of these large businesses, open heart surgery has been in decline of 1% per year because of stents and, and other treatments for heart disease. Yeah. Um, but it's tens of millions of dollars of, of business and they're just walking away from it because it doesn't have growth and that's what they're looking for. So typically as, as uh, technology matures, they look at it as um, flat or declining and then it doesn't deserve investment. Yeah. And it, I guess if, if they're a company that has already put or was going to have to put a lot of time and money into R&D on something, if, it's, if, if the growth isn't there, then it's not worth it to them. Right. A company that doesn't have to do the R&D, they just have to work the process of selling a particular product, it becomes worth it to them. And, and they're right. smaller too. Well, the view is different, right? So on a large company, they have the market. You know, they have 70% of the market. So if the market's in decline, their market is shrinking. Mm. If we have 1% of the market getting to 2% to 5%, that represents substantial growth. And so our views of the market, what's, what's small to them is large to us. And what is flat to them represents growth for us because yeah. we're not the market share leader. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting concept, but, you know, basically a, a company that's picking up, you know, that's 
eating some other big company scraps that they don't want anymore. Right. It's kind of what it is, but yeah, but you just can't be overly proud, right? You, yeah, you know, recognize where you're at in the in the market and make the best of it, and identify. You know, we still have to identify return on investment, rate of return, all the same things that that large companies do, but our perspective is just completely different. Yeah, and you also mentioned um, the non-sexy cash cow type product. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said for that too, and um, sometimes some of some of the favorite fo- my favorite folks I interview on the podcast are guys that got out and they, they don't do something real sexy or popular that they, they, they run a lawn mowing business or they run a commercial cleaning business or something. It's not sexy, not something you brag about at the cocktail party, but they've got over $4 million of government contracts mowing grass. Right. Right. Um, so th- there's so many, you know, you don't have to invent, invent the next iPhone to be a successful entrepreneur. And let, let's face it. Most, most military folks probably aren't really concerned about um, becoming famous or having that real cool, sexy product. They just, they want to, they want to grind it out and, and make a good. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, for myself, I'm very driven by respect. I want to be respected for what I've accomplished. And, you know, I, I think what, uh, I focused on in my career, it, just like when I was a B-52 navigator or, or radar navigator, I absolutely wanted to be the best at what I did. Mm-hmm. I, there was just no second place for me uh, when when I was doing that. I wanted to know everything about that role. Um, and in business, I want my company to be experts at whatever we're doing. I want to be respected that's why this contract's so important to us. That's why, you know, today we're working on um, an antigen test uh, purchase order for $15 million. And um, it just um, antigen testing doesn't sound real sexy. Uh, What's an antigen test? Yeah, an- exactly. <laughs> so um, I'll ask. The, the test for uh, COVID. Uh, there's a uh, DNA uh, yeah. test or an RNA where they're actually looking for um, aspects of the virus itself. Then there's an antigen, which is um, it's what is in the body. The body is responding to um, uh, it's the antigen itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's antibody testing, which is the body's um, um, disease fighting response to the the virus. So the antigen test is is the newer aspect of uh, what's coming. And uh, we see a a very short timeframe where this is going to be important, but um, testing is critical to the recovery from from this pandemic. Wow, that's interesting. Um, Can you, uh, so talk a little bit about Alliant Healthcare and where you're at now and what you're doing, what's your main theme of what you do with healthcare? So what, what um, I found out, um, we started up this effort back in 2007, 2008. Uh, We're very nimble um, and we're, we're, I call us a great onion peeler. So when you take a problem, 
you just, you don't know what the answer is. You just peel the onion and you find out. And I think, again, that's where military people have an advantage over civilians is you don't always have the time and comfort to solve a problem sitting at what people call ground speed zero. You have to, you have to solve it um, on, the, on the move. And so I think that's what one of our strengths has been is that um, we've been able to become experts very rapidly in certain areas. And we discovered this skill set early on in distri distributing products into the federal government. We found out um, it's a it's a very tedious, uh, highly detailed, very legalistic uh, uh, environment. But once you know all the rules and you can follow them, um, it's an expertise that even large companies don't have. We we know more about government acquisition than just about anyone. We um, were in the top 50, um, probably around the number 40 supplier of healthcare products into the federal government. We provide uh, the VA and DOD with over $100 million of um, healthcare products every year. So we see everything there is to see in selling to the federal government. And uh, that talk a little bit about that process, especially at the level you're at. Um, you know, it's one thing if you're trying to sell the DOD, you know, the, the next cool knife or the next Molly pack or something like that. But with, with healthcare items, I, I can imagine the sophistication is way up there. Well, it's whether you want to sell a, a knife, uh, a kit or a medical device, the rules are exactly the same. It, it, it really is. Um, now, we represent 30-plus um, companies in all of their products into the federal government. So, obviously, we can't sell those products clinically. You know, on a hospital bed or, a, or an ICU bed, they're extremely technical. So, we need to rely on their sales force. But a mistake that many, many companies make in selling to the government is if your knife is the sharpest and the lightest and the longest lasting and never needs sharpening. That's not enough to sell into the government. You can convince someone that they need it and that they want to buy it. But if you don't provide it in um, what we call the acquisition strategy that the government wants to buy it, meaning it has to be either on contract or you need to know how to navigate open market. There's just technical terms and, and abbreviations that are too numerous to mention, but uh, that's what we do. We, we navigate, there's two paths to sell into the government. There's the clinical, the features and benefits and, and, uh, and the pricing and everything. And then there's the acquisition strategy, which is all the contracting tools that are needed to acquire those products. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I know it's, a massive amount of detail. Um, like what are some of the, what are some of the things most people might not be aware of in trying to sell a product in this case, or maybe even a service to the government? Um, so when you sell to a customer on uh, Facebook or on, it's a purchase order, right? Mm -hmm. You get a purchase order, you get a credit card, you send them the product, end of transaction. When we sell to the government, there's about 40 pages of, it's a contract, it's not a purchase order. 
And so you have to meet all these requirements. Is it made in the USA? Is it um, trade agreement compliant? Uh, do all the employees meet the EEO? Uh, you know, have we filled out all the I-9 forms? Uh, you're, when you sign this documentation, you're guaranteeing the government that you're in compliance with all the rules and regulations that the government requires. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing that I've seen, especially for veterans entering, they just assume that, oh, um, I don't have to worry about that. I'm just going to sell my widget. And um, the government can always find a reason to come and ask questions and find out down the road whether or not you complied. So huh. the, way I've, the way I've heard it is there are no uh, – all corners are sharp corners. There's no cutting corners in, in the government. <laughs> um, yeah, I imagine um, if you're dealing with companies that have never sold to the government, it's quite, quite a, a rude awakening um, and introduction exactly. in that process. Um, do, do you find that since you've done this many times over at this point, the people within the government and the organizations within the government, you've gotten to know them and they've actually gotten to know you and it becomes easier just because you've done not just the process, but actually the government employees, the contractors involved within the process? Well, I, when I first started here, I thought saying the word no was a genetic, uh, marker in all government um, workers. I, I, I couldn't understand why every time I went to them, I just got no and a reason why no. And that's why being an entrepreneur is so important is, you know, you get hit in the head with the board so many times you think you'd give up, but uh, we just kind of kept, kept going after it. What, I've, what I found out is the reason why some of these contracting officers say no is it's out of uh, a fear of making a mistake out of um, buying something that doesn't work out or using a, a contract tool that they've never used before. Um, these contracting officers are given a warrant. They, um, a warrant is how much money can they spend on each purchase. Uh, it goes down from $10,000 credit card purchase to you know millions of dollars. And that warrant is their career. So if they make a mistake and they lose that warrant, they're done. Mm. So um, what I realized is their fear is fear of making mistakes. So that's where the no comes from. Now we're kind of a proven commodity. We've done so many transactions and delivered so many positive results that they actually like working with us. They seek us out. They say, hey, can you find a way to work with this other company? Because we just don't know them well enough. Hmm. Or, um, yeah. or uh, once we have these contracts, it's just the easy button. It means no mistakes, you know? Well, that's something else you've actually got to have a uh, trusting, have those guys trusting you, um, probably took a while and quite, quite a bit of diligence. It's an enormous effort. And, you know, I'll say that um, I have focused extremely hard. When I started this company, the very first thing I did was I decided what the culture was going to be. I call it culture first. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I built this company based on that culture. And the sole purpose was to attract the best, brightest people. Um, I built it on five pillars, um, exceeding the needs of a passion to exceed the needs of our customer, dedication to providing great leadership, devotion to the best quality in all we do, a commitment to holding ourselves and each other accountable, and a genuine concern for everyone that works at the company. And if you think about it, that's, um, that's a place that just about anyone would want to work, where, hey, if the people I work with, they genuinely care about me, and I can genuinely care about them, and I've got great leaders, um, and everyone's focused on taking care of the customer with great products, and I can be self-directed and hold myself accountable. That, those are things that people strive for. Well, the result of building that culture is that I've been able to attract some outstanding people. And um, we have fun. We, we enjoy working with each other. It, um, it can be extremely stressful sometimes. I mean, the, the last quarter of the government's fiscal year is unbelievable how busy it is for us. Yeah. We, do, we do 60% of our business with the government in August and September. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Trying, so, trying to burn flight hours. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so we're doing a hundred million dollars where we take possession of the products. We take title to it. We're doing all those transactions financially and we've got a very small finance team. So we have to do things really, really well and make sure that as we're talking to all these people that we keep, keep our commitments. And having done that over the years, people have, have built that trust in us. Right. Well, hey, Bob, um, getting close to the end of our time. I understand you just recently finished your book. Yeah. Um, so I'm, a, um, I'm referred to as a service-disabled veteran. And, you know, looking at me, um, I know that there are veterans – that uh, have sacrificed far more than I have. And so I've always um, kept it in my mind um, that I want to do things in a way that, um, that if I were a veteran outside looking in, that I would be proud of the work that, that this company's doing. So I've always had this, um, this feeling of a need to take care of other veterans. And when you look at some of the statistics, I don't know if you know all these, I think everyone has heard the 22 um, suicides per day of veterans. What's stunning on that, Joe, is that of every, what they call um, actual suicide, there are four attempted suicides. So there could be 60 to 90 attempted suicides per day. Mm. And that's just unacceptable. Yeah. Um, on any given day, according to uh, government statistics, there's 65 to 75,000 homeless veterans. Hmm. And one out of every five of them is living in non-human uh, habitable uh, facilities. So that's, those are just unacceptable to me. And so I wrote this book, From Service to Success, and I went back. And I looked at what is it that, that makes veterans um, 
so successful in the military and what causes that transition to be difficult. And the tagline of the book is um, new mission, new purpose. And I think that's what happens is the mission and purpose is so clear when you're in the military. Mm -hmm. It's just, I mean, straight on, you know what you're waking up and you're supposed to do. You've got people that are um, in support roles or you're in a support role to help someone succeed. And it's crystal clear. When you get out of the military, it's not so clear. And you've been reprogrammed when you joined the military through basic training, officers training, whatever it was, you were programmed for that single purpose and mission. And when you get out, people don't utilize the same discipline to reprogram themselves. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I think <clears throat> people need to discover their own passion. And uh, this book lays out um, nine chapters of going through an evaluation process, recognizing where the strengths are and um, what, what skills we actually bring. And then discovering um, not only how to find a job, but how do you create and what is real success in your life? And that's what I want for everyone that works for me. But I think that that's recreatable for every veteran that is struggling. I really do. And so that's why I wrote the book. Um, it should be coming out here in the next uh, couple months. And what I hope to do is. Um, is get people to buy the book, not only for themselves, but to donate four or five copies that I can take around the country and, and sign and, and give away at VAs to, um, to other veterans. Right. You know, um, I would say that the single most cause of most problems like that is absolutely due to uh, lack of purpose, loss of their sense of purpose, a sense of purpose, really more importantly than anything else. Um, so yeah, you're definitely, definitely, uh, hitting well, the, hitting the nail on the head with that one. For, for, uh, myself as a navigator or bombardier and B-52s, I was at the, the peak of my game. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, it's just kind of hard to describe it, how important, um, what you're doing and how that feels. And when you're able to, uh, to do those things in a combat situation, you know, it's putting all that training together and going out and doing what your, what your trained purpose is. Um, it's hard to replicate that in the civilian world. It's hard, but it's not impossible. And that's what we have to teach veterans to do. That's awesome. Well, hey, we look forward to, to your book coming out, uh, Bob. Um, thanks for uh, sharing your uh, veteran entrepreneurial success story. We look forward to your future success and uh, I wish we could keep going on for a little while. Yeah. So maybe we'll have to have well, you back you on the show. Much, you bet. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a, it was a really nice conversation. Thanks for... You bet. All right. Um, well, that's it for now. And uh, these two veterans are Oscar Mike. Thank you for listening to Veteran on the Move, your pathfinder to freedom. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are always greatly appreciated. So until next time, this veteran is Oscar Mike. <laughs>